Today's sermon is from Ephesians three fourteen to 19. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you, sweetheart. Good morning. morning. Kiddos, good morning. Kids, are you there? Okay, good. All right. You can't leave, so you have to stay here uh, and listen to me. Let me, uh, let me pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of gathering around your word. We hear a thousand voices throughout the week, and we need to be attentive to the greatest of all. So help us to do that this morning. By your power, by your strength in our inner being, through the work of the Spirit, that we know your love. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So I think there are at least three studies that we can kind of piece together in order to begin to understand the increasingly chaotic times uh, in which we live. Three separate studies I think we can kind of piece together to begin to make some sense. And the first study is from an organization called Mental Health America. And their studies reveal that in the last five years that we are seeing an ever-increasing amount of youths experiencing severe depression. So there's an increasing mental health problem amongst youth in our nation. And then second uh, study would be that uh, many studies have corroborated this, that Every child uh, that is, most every child that is raised in the presence of a loving, heavenly, sorry, well, yes, heavenly father, but a father and a mother, uh, every child that is raised in the home uh, of a mother and a father that is loving them, those children disproportionately wound up in their adulthood to be very mentally and emotionally stable. So we have children that are raised in the presence of a loving mother and father, the more stable they are. And then the last study uh, we find is that uh, fewer than half of the United States children under the age of 18, are living in a home with a mother and a father. 48% living in a home with a mother and a father. Compare that to 1960, where 73% of children were raised in a home with a mother and a father, and 1980, uh, where it was 61%, and now we are at 48%. So mental health problems are on the rise, while the environment that is proven to strengthen mental health is simultaneously on the decline. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this, but let me make one observation in preparation for our time in the Word, and that is this. The presence of love in a particular kind of family is critical to the development of the kind of life that might be said to be peaceful, hopeful, full. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage that my wife just read a moment ago. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see what every study reveals, that we need love 
if we are going to be strengthened to live and to flourish as human beings, we're going to need love in a particular family. A particular kind of love, a particular kind of family together is going to cause us to strengthen. And so the love of a particular kind of uh, family with a particular love from, as we will see, Christ. Love of Christ in the family of His church. That's what we'll see. This is what Paul, who's the author of this letter, the letter to the Ephesian church, the Apostle Paul, this is what he prays for the church in Ephesus. And guys, this is what we need to pray for each other as a church. We need to pray this for each other. Pray for a love that surpasses knowledge. In a very heady town, it's good to be reminded of this. Pray for a love that surpasses knowledge. So before we jump in, let me give us a little bit of a review. If you look ahead, next week we'll take a look at 3, 20, and 21. But if you'll notice, in 4, 1, the letter transitions. We've been spending a lot of time thinking about these kind of positional truths of who we are in Christ. And then you'll notice in 4.1, from 4, 5, and 6, those three chapters, it'll transition into a lot of application. So let me give a brief review of what we've seen so far. And we'll do it by looking at three verses. Chapter 1, verse 10, 2.10, and 3.10. And what we saw in chapter 1, verse 10, really the summation of the letter in the book of Ephesus, that is that in Christ, God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth together. In Christ, God is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth together, bringing them together as one, bringing peace. That's 1.10. 2.10, we see that God, the way that God is doing that, bringing about that peace, bringing about that unification, is through Him saving sinners and making them saints. Not by their own works, but by the work of Christ. And so 2.10 teaches, 2.1-10 teaches how God does that, but 2.10 in particular shows that they're not saved by any work of their own, but they're saved by Christ, but note, to do good works. And so, therefore, we then might ask the question, God's reconciling the heavens and earth together. He's doing that through these people that He's saying, saving that are doing good works. Where are they? Where could we go to see that? Where could we go to find them? Take a look around. That's chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, The church, the manifold wisdom of God. He's doing it through the church, wherein God is uniting all mankind together. So, in Christ, God's reconciling heaven and earth. He's reconciling us Uh, to himself and he's reconciling us to himself man with man and church is the expression of his wisdom we uh, where all of that comes together the church as we have seen is the one people of god jew and gentile male and female rich and poor slave and free free the the hostility that was between us and god and between us and one another the kind of hostility right that we still see in the world today in christ he overcomes all of that he brings sinners together makes them saved reconciles us together. And so since we are the church, the one people reconciled to God and one another in Christ through faith, we then take a look at chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, we have, current, have access, boldness and access with confidence to go to God. Which leads Paul to what he says next. Chapter 3, verse 14. And Paul, he understands all this. He's worked all this stuff out since we have boldness and access because of the grace, mercy, and love of Christ, we then have boldness and access to go to God in prayer. That's why we see there in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees, Paul says. For this reason I bow my knee. The reason is God bringing this unification of the one people of God. So we can pray. So let me give you a little bit of a survey here of where we're going, of what this passage teaches. should be above me, ahead Now, you should see that this is kind of the general outline of the passage. So, uh, because we have this access to the Father 
in prayer because of his work. Therefore, what we're going to see is Paul then prays to his powerful and wealthy father. That's 14 and 16, first part. He then, secondly, he then asks the church to be strengthened by the Spirit. That's 16. Then where? Where does he want the strength to go? Well, in our inner being. That's the second half of 16. Fourth, so that the love of Christ may dwell there. We'll talk about that. Fifth, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. There it is. There's the whole passage. There's the outline of that passage. So that's the meaning. That's the progression of the prayer. This, this prayer, by the way, it teaches us not only, uh, uh, it teaches us not only how to pray, but it teaches us what to pray. This passage. And so let's take a look at it as we just move through those progressions. Verse 14, Paul says that he's bowing his knees before the uh, Father. So guys, note the posture of Paul here. Bowing. He's illustrating what ought to be the posture of every Christian. Namely, that we have what we have only by the grace of God. Nothing because of what we have done. And so therefore, we as uh, people of God, we pray not proudly. We pray humbly. We pray humbly. But note that we pray humbly, bowing before the Father, to the Father. He's our Father. Isn't that amazing? So we're bowing before Almighty God, rightfully so. But we're also praying to our Father. So we bow before the presence of Almighty God as we should, yet we have access to Him and we can call Him Father. We've got this great kind of two truths that come together. And our Father, this one of whom we pray to, look at verse 15, that every family in heaven or on earth is named. That's the one we pray to. Every family. Take a look around. Guess who you come from? God. That one. And He's the one we pray to. Every family on earth, every people group on earth, He's the one that they're named uh, from because God made them. And then the Father that has abundant riches of glory. That's the one that Paul prays to. Abundant riches of glory. That we, as people of God, we can pray to God who has this abundant riches of glory and ask Him to use those abundant riches on His people for His glory. Amazing thing. So Paul knows who he prays to. Do you? Do you know who you pray to? Do you know this God of whom you pray to? Paul knows the God that he prays to. He knows that, Paul, that this God gives him access by Christ. He knows that his uh, God is his Father. And then he knows that his Father is powerful and wealthy. He's powerful because he makes every family. He's wealthy because he has riches of glory. He doesn't just have some riches. He's wealthy of glory. Paul knows the God of whom he prays to. So you've got to know who you pray to so you can know what you should ask him. Right? So just think about this for a second. You could ask me for a million dollars. You ain't going to get it, right? You go ask Warren Buffett for a million dollars, right? More opportunity to have that million dollars. So you've got to know who you're asking, right? So you know what to ask and how to ask. So Paul knew that he was loved by his heavenly father. He knew that he was his adopted son. He knew that his father was powerful and wealthy. Therefore, he could ask things of this father that are in keeping with that power and that wealth. So I just wonder, what might you then ask if you know? What might you ask God if you knew these things? So I wonder if we were to rewind in the past week, what kinds of things have you asked God? And is that in keeping with His power and His wealth for His glory? Just kind of think about that for a moment. Okay, move, move on. And now let's ask or take a note of what Paul prays. Again, we learn what to pray for here. So what does Paul pray for? He's aware of these things. What does he pray for? Well, we see here Paul prays to his powerful 
and wealthy father on behalf of the church in Ephesus while still in prison. Don't lose sight of that, guys. This dude's in prison for preaching the same gospel. He's in prison, writing this letter, and he's praying for them. He's telling them what he prays. What does he pray for? Verse 16, he prays that God would grant you, that's the church, grant the church to be strengthened with power through the Spirit. So Paul's sharing his prayer with the church in Ephesus, and his prayer is that the Father would grant, would graciously give strength with power. Graciously give strength with power. He wants that power, strong power. And he understands that that comes where? He's, he understands this comes through the Spirit. Do you see that? It's got to come through the Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, each of them having their roles. You, you guys watching this Trinity thing out? Right? This is amazing stuff. This is like the third time in this letter where we see the Trinity working itself out. We, we sang that today. We see it illustrated here. The Spirit, he understands the power, the strength comes uh, through the Spirit. That's what he's praying for. He wants his Father, our Father, to grant a kind of strength and power that only God can give by His Spirit. And what does God want, uh, what does Paul want uh, God to do, the Spirit to do with that power? Well, look at verse 16. He wants it to go into your, that's a second person plural, collective. This is church. This is us. Go into your inner being. He wants it to go into your inner being. Our inner being. So Paul here is not interested in praying that this local church would be a fellowship of supermen. Arnold Schwarzenegger's name your really external powerful guy. He's not praying that they would get a lot of worldly kind of strength and power. That's not what he prays for. He prays for power and strength to get inside of them. Inside. He wants it to start down in here. Paul is not primarily interested in external power. He's interested in supernatural power that goes inside into our inner being. Because Paul knows, do you know this? Paul knows that power, strength works from the inside out, not from the outside in, like the world tells us. Inside out. So he's praying, he's praying, God give them power through the Spirit to their inner being of this church. This church would know the power of you, God, in their inner being. May this church know that. So, okay, what's the goal of this power to go into their inner being of the church? That's verse 17. So that, see it there? Christ may dwell in your hearts. There's the inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Alright, real quick observation. Did y'all notice there's two throughs there? Through the Spirit, through faith. So catch that? Alright, so that's a beautiful thing. So you say, Nathan, is it God doing stuff in us or do we need to do stuff? Yes. Right? That's the answer. Alright? So it's, it's us. We need to believe. We need to have faith. We need to trust God and His promises. Trust Jesus. But it's the Spirit working in us. It's both. Paul wants power to come in the inner being of the church so that Christ may dwell down in our hearts. Now, some of you are going, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nathan, didn't you say a couple weeks ago that we were the household of God? That's what you said. Is that what you said, Nathan? Didn't you say we already were? Chapter 2, verse 19, I think it was, somewhere in there. We are, we are the household of God. Did I say that? I did. Yes, I did. And now you're going, I'm confused. How is it we are the household of God and yet Paul needs to pray for us to be Christ to come live inside? Great question. Important question. It's important to get this straight in our hearts and in our minds. There's a difference, beloved, between justification and sanctification. 
There's a difference between the, what we might say, the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet are the justification, sanctification. In Christ, we are justified, counted completely innocent. His record is our record. That's true positionally. We are given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We have adoption. We have redemption, chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, the forgiveness of all our sins. We have present tense active. It's ours. We have obtained an inheritance that can never be taken away. Chapter 1, verse 11. That can't be taken away. It is true of you today, beloved. It is true of us. We are now members of the household of God. 2.19. That's true. That is positionally true. But we lack the full experience of those realities, don't we? We all do. And that's the sanctification. That's the not yet. So that's why Paul feels the need to pray for that. So he then moves into, uh, you see, but remember actually back in chapter 1, verse 15, y'all remember way back there? It's like a month ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, so if you were to go back there and look, remember chapter 3 to 14, it's all these truths and it's one sentence. You remember that? 1, 3, 14, truth, 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 truth. And then he says, look, flip over and look at it. One fifteen. what does it say? Same three words. For this reason. Then he prays. Remember he prays there that the Spirit would come in, that their hearts would be illumined to the hope of the calling to which they have been called. Remember that? He's doing the same thing here. Same thing here. So he does. he rehearses these positional truths. That we already have from chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, this is fun. I didn't mention this last week. Chapter 3, verse 1. Did you notice there? He says again, for this reason. So this is great. This is sort of, Paul's a little like me in that he kind of gets all over the place sometimes. And it like stops. He cuts off his prayer. I need to give you some more truth. Hang on before I start praying. And then he goes back into uh, verse 14, for this reason. So he's rehearsing truth to 1, to 3, uh, 13. And then he does the same thing he does in one fifteen. He then prays that they would experience those truths. So he's praying that they would, since we have this oneness, since it's all true, that's what we've been rehearsing, since we have this oneness in Christ, then we would, he's praying that we would then experience the power of that oneness. The power of the love in particular, as we'll see, to the full. Let me try and give you guys an illustration of how this works. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you marry someone that owns a house. Right? And uh, you, the, the day you marry them, you love them, you, you love them, all that is there that is yours, all that is yours is theirs, including that house. And after your wedding day, you head over to this new house that you've now inherited to live. Now you're one, right? You're one couple. There's, there's a married, you're now one in love. And you move into this house that you've inherited and you walk into this house and you open up this house and when you walk inside, it's like, yeah, like mm, shag carpets, clown wallpaper, right? It's kind of falling down a little bit. Maybe there's like uh, some doors that are hanging, you know, and it's livable. Like you can live there. Like it's yours. Like you're married. You love each other. You're one. You got a house. You've inherited it. It's your house, but it needs some work. And Restoration Church, we need some work, right? Even though we got a house, we're one. Same idea. So what we find that happens is over the course of time, right, in marriage, right, you learn to love one another, don't you? You grow up. I, the, January the 24th, 2003, got it right, sweetheart, 23, 20, that was, I was married and I loved my wife and I was one with her. But over the last almost 16 years, I love my wife way more today than I did that day. And I thought I loved her a bunch. I grew up in that love. And the kind of house that we live in, even though it's moved, you know, however many times, our house is better, Right? 
the wallpaper is now sort of a little fixed and, and uh, the doors are on their hinges. And now we enjoy the house that we live in fully. And that's the way it is with the church, right? We grow up into these positional realities, this love that we have. We grow up into them and we enjoy them. We start to use all of the house and all of our love more often. That's what Paul's praying. That's what he's praying. He knows that we're married to Christ. We have all the rights and privileges of sons as sons. He knows that's our identity. That's who we are. He knows that we are God's household uh, here on earth. He knows that. But he's praying that we would learn to grow up and experience those realities in all of their beauty. Just enjoy those. We in churches like ours at Restoration Church, we talk a lot about sort of knowing things with our heads. We don't talk enough about experiencing things sometimes. And so that's what Paul's praying. We need to experience these beautiful realities. That's what he's praying for. And that's why it's important that you guys get that word there in verse 17, dwell. If you're one of these people that circles like me, circle that word dwell, underline dwell, very important word. Paul is praying to his father that all power and riches to strengthen the church in Ephesus in order that Christ may dwell in their inner being, in their hearts, the center of their lives. And Paul then, he has two words he could have used to communicate his point there. Two words. He could have communicated the word that, that meant to visit. God, empower them. Spirit, come in them. Empower them. Strengthen them in their inner being so that Christ would visit their hearts. That's what he could have put. The other option that he used is a word that means to move in. Christ, come in. Strengthen them. Empower them. That Christ may move in. Which one do you think he used? It's the second one, right? Move in. Dwell. Take over. That's what he's praying. Paul is praying that God would grant the Spirit to empower the church in Ephesus to experience, enjoy what it's like for Christ to not just visit our hearts, but to dwell in them. All of them. Every part, every corner, every credit. It's not just Sunday mornings from 10.30 to 12.08, like our service, right? Not just then, not just the morning devotionals. All of it. He's praying that all of it, would, Christ would dwell in all of your hearts, all of your life. And you would enjoy that. Take it over. And then he goes on to explain this Christ that he wants to dwell in there. Verse 17. That you. So power comes in, inner being, to the church. Then comes in, strengthened, uh, so that Christ would dwell. That you, being rooted and grounded in love. This goes back to 2.4, I think it is. Right, two for the rooted and grounded in love. Right, remember because of the great love with which he loved us. Remember that? That's how he saved us, made us alive. So we're, we've been rooted. We've become a people because of the love of God. So we're rooted. We're grounded in that love. So he's praying because so that you, the strength power, comes in rooted, grounded in love, and then he goes on to talk about how then we can then uh, comprehend that great love. In particular, I love thinking about it like this: that we would then comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. That's what he's praying for. That we would have God-sized strength to appreciate, don't lose this, with all the saints. Alright, American individualism, we, we love that. We're all about that. Got to push against that. Bible doesn't reflect that hyper-individualism like do in our culture. We, we understand the love of Christ with all the saints. In other words, you can't understand the greatness of the love of Christ on your own. We need it with all the saints. That's what he's praying for. And that, that, by the way, goes back to the very beginning of my introduction. We need a great love, the love of Christ with a great family, his church. And in those two things, we are weighted down. 
And he's praying we'd have God-sized strength to appreciate with all the strength, all the saints, what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. A love that's so great that it surpasses knowledge. That's what I mean by comprehending the incomprehensible. And then he finally lands the plane. Why? Why does he want them to be full of this love? That they would might be filled with all the fullness of God. See that? There it is. So you get this love. You get this love filled up in us. Then, man, we can sit down. We're going to be all right, no matter what comes. We're going to love God. We're going to love each other. And he wants that love to just well up in us. And of course, knowing Paul, what does he do? Right out on the other end of that, he breaks into a doxology in verses 20 and 21, which you'll have to wait to come back to next week and hear. This is an amazing prayer. Paul is praying, God, empower the church in Ephesus to comprehend, be filled up with the love of Christ, a love that has no bounds. God, may they know that. This is what I want for them. Please, God, please give this to the church there in Ephesus. I want them to have the fullness of the love of Christ. I want them to know, not with just with their heads, I want them to know with their hearts, as a people, with all the saints, what is your love, the strength of your love in their inner beings. I'm asking you to strengthen them, God, with the greatest love of all. Fill them up with it that they might be filled with the love of God. That's what he's praying. Beautiful prayer. So guys, if we're ever going to thrive, not just as individuals, but as one people of the God, the church, we're going to have to have more than proper doctrine. And we're also going to have to have more than great supernatural individual experiences. We need more than that. We need more than both of those things. We are going to have to be strengthened by the Spirit along with the other saints together for the ends of comprehending the incomprehensible love of Christ. That's what we need. And we need all those other things to happen. We need all this to come together. Christ's love in our hearts, not just our heads, our hearts as a people, as one. And so, therefore, beloved, look to the cross of Christ where love and mercy meet. That's where love is found. That's where love is defined. Go back and read this later this afternoon. 1 John 4, 7 down to 11. If you've ever been to a church, uh, sorry, if you've ever been to a restoration church wedding ceremony, you've probably heard me talk a lot about this. God is love. We've heard that. Many of you have heard that. That passage talks about how God is love. And it connects it. And it helps us see that love is found in the gospel. Where Christ hangs on a tree for the sins of humanity. Buried, risen, so that we might then be reconciled to God and to one another again. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't trust in ourselves, we trust in the work of Christ. And right there is where we see love. And that love that was secured for us, deposited into our hearts. We need to grow up into that, that love. And so friend, if you are not trusting Christ, might I encourage you to look to the love of Christ on the cross. Don't look to the things of the world to fill up your soul, to fill up your love. It won't do it. It never will. You look to the love of Christ. This is why Jesus taught, eat of me and you'll never be hungry again. Drink of me and you'll never be thirsty again. So friend, if you're not trusting Christ, look to Christ and be full of His love and then be enveloped into His family. That's what you need. Love and family. The love of Christ and the family. And so let me just take a moment and do what is the impossible. Let me try and rehearse for all of us this immeasurable love that we might be more readily empowered by it through the Spirit, that we would be full. 
going to take us to the ocean's edge, glimpse into the love of Christ, so that we might then experience the fullness of God. So first off, gaze at the breadth of the love of Christ. That is to say, look at the width of it, how wide it is. That again, it includes Jew and Gentile, male and female, white, black, Asian, Hispanic. Our whole society is just destroyed and has been for ages because it can't figure this out. Christ is the place where love comes together. His love is so wide that it includes those that grew up in Christian homes. And His love is so wide that it can include uh, those of whom are hearing the Gospel for the first time this morning. It can include you. His love is so wide that it can, conclude, it can include the rich and the poor, the old and the young, the abused. And yes, listen, those of you that have abused, it can include you too. The murderer, the extortionist, the liar, the cheat. Yes, it, it can include you too. There's enough room. His love is so wide to include you in His love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. The breadth of the love of Christ is so wide that it can, include, it can include us all. Because Christ was all and in all that believed. So Jesus, right, was wealthy and He was poor. He was a Jew and yet He was also what? A light to the Gentiles, wasn't He? He was a man and yet He ministered strongly to women. His love is wide. So may the Spirit strengthen us restoration church in our inner being so that with the church we might comprehend the incomprehensible breadth of the love of christ and then may we gaze at the length of the love of christ look at the distance between heaven and earth consider that length of his love though he was god He was willing to set His glory aside, Jesus, and take the form of a servant. A man. He humbled, Jesus does. He humbles Himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The descent from heaven to earth is the length of the love of Christ that can empower us to not just walk a mile with our enemies, walk two miles with them. Ten, twelve, twenty miles with them. Gaze at the breadth of the love of Christ. Gaze at the length of the love of Christ. And gaze at the height of the love of Christ. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. Consider the heights of His love that raises up you and I, beloved, to sit with Him on the heavenly throne. Consider that in His heavenly ascension, we went with Him. His love is that high. Higher than the heavens. The love of Christ is so high that it spans the furthest reaches of our outer space onto distant, unknown places. It reaches out that far. Christian, consider the breadth of the love of Christ. Consider the length of the love of Christ. Consider the height of the love of Christ. And consider the depth of the love of Christ. Consider how low our Savior went to love you and His Father. Consider all the chastisements all the griefs, the disappointments that He was willing to endure in order to bring us home, to make us one people. Gaze at the love of Christ when He was beaten, spat upon, had nails thrust into His hands and His feet. This is the depth of His love for you, Christian. That's how far He's willing to go to show you the love of God. 
And consider the fact that all of that love was freely given. He was not obligated in any way. He willingly laid His life down. Freely given for us. What a marvelous God Jesus reveals to us. Our brother Octavius Winslow says that Jesus' love Jesus' love exchanges our filthy rags for a spotless robe. He exchanges our condemnation for hope. Our hell for heaven. An eternity of woe for an eternity of bliss. What divine peace should this truth, he says, impart? What fervent love should it inspire? What holy, unreserved surrender it should induce? And so I ask the question to us, Restoration Church, What might it do for us? Just dream for a second with me. What might it do for us if this love, by the power of the Spirit, might get inside us even more? What might happen to us? What might happen to us? What might happen to this community if the power of the love of God in Christ Jesus through the Spirit more powerfully dwelt within us? What would happen? To to be clear, it has. It is evident that the love of Christ has been at work in our midst. What might happen? Consider that if we were to more powerfully pray for and see the love of Christ in our inner beings, consider how this love would cause us to not need the approval of the world. Precisely because we have the approbation of our Master. We would not despair of job titles. We would not despair of relationship statuses. Other circumstantial grievances. We would not grovel as the world does over the election of earthly princes that will die soon enough. We would not go to great lengths to get attention so that we would be loved because we've been loved by God. We would be content with what our Sovereign Lord gives us. We would be thankful because we would know something of the love of Christ in our inner beings. Consider, guys, consider how if we more powerfully experience the love of Christ, we would more readily be willing to fearlessly make known the gospel to those that do not believe. If that love was more in us, we would more fearlessly go and spread that. How often does our love for the world crowd out the very love that leads us to share the love of Christ with others? Consider how many more church planners we might be able to send to fund, to pray for, to support. What might we do if the love of Christ more powerfully dwelt within us? So pray as Paul does, that Christ would dwell with this church family. Consider how many of us would be healed of our fear of failure. Healed of the fear of man. Healed of the ghosts of the past. Consider how if the love of Christ more powerfully existed within our hearts, we would be more zealous to make disciples. More zealous to grieve with those that grieve. Mourn with those that mourn. Laugh with those that laugh. How we might more zealously even go so far as to rejoicing when our sort of rival sees progress. Maybe your coworker gets that promotion and you don't get it. Can you imagine if the love of Christ so powerfully dwelt within us, instead of being jealous about that and angry about that, and spiteful, you get happy. And you sing with them and you laugh with them. That could happen. Kids, speaking to you for a moment, what might happen if the love of Christ would powerfully get inside you? What would happen? We could dream about these things, couldn't we? At the very least, guys, I think that we 
would learn to be content. If the love of Christ more powerfully was in us by the Spirit, we, we got that Christ was dwelling in all the house. I think at the minimum, we would at least all of us as a church, we would be more content as a people. Our lives are so busy. So full of anxiety. So full of questions of what's going to come next. If the love of Christ more powerfully dwelt among us as a people, I think we would begin to be healed of our hurry sickness. We might drive less and walk more. We might talk less and listen more. We might look up from our screens more often and enjoy the world around us that God made. We might network less Fellowship more. We might remind our spouses. We might stop reminding our spouses of their failures and learn to give them more grace and forgiveness. We would complain less. Be thankful more. If the love of Christ strengthened our inner being as a people, it would, I think, quiet our hearts. We would probably maybe, maybe read less and learn to pray more. We would tell more stories to our kids. Probably laugh with our kids more often. The love of Christ was powerfully filling us up as a people. I think we would worry less. We would trust more. We would be less afraid of dying. And therefore more useful as we're living. We would wonder more. Sing more. I think our physical bodies would be healthier. The powerful love of Christ would dwell us. If the Spirit so moved within us as a people to, to comprehend the greatest love of all, I think this is the biggest one, we would worship Jesus more. We would love Jesus more. We would love Jesus. We would powerfully enjoy Jesus more. That would be the one thing that I know would happen. We would think about the greatest love of all. We would worship Jesus. We would treasure Jesus. We would delight in Jesus. We would speak of Jesus more often. Looking forward to the day when we get to see Jesus and enjoy Jesus forever. If His powerful love came within us. What might God do according to the riches of His glory if He were to so send the Spirit among us to taste and experience the love of Christ? Guys, pray that He would do it. Pray that He would do it in our midst. And pray not only for this church, that the powerful love of God, love of Christ, by His Spirit would get in on us. Pray not only for us, pray for other churches in this city. You heard Joey pray for that earlier. Learn to pray for other churches, not just this one. Pray that the love of Christ would get on those churches. And pray for churches to to more powerfully know the love of Christ in our nation and around the world. That churches would be planted, that people would know the love of Christ. The world would be healed. Pray that. Before I close, let me leave you with one more prayer. The prayer of Jesus Himself in John 17. I'm going to close with this. And I think you notice when when we read this prayer, it's going to sound very similar to the same prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. Listen to the words of Christ as He prays. John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, His disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. Guess who that is? You. Me. Us. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, praying for us. 
I not only ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be what? One. And exactly what Paul has been rehearsing. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one even as we are one. See, you see what he's saying? He wants the church and God to be one because God is one. He wants it to bring it all together. I and them, he prays, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, here it is, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they be with me where I am to see my glory that You have given me because You loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. And these know that You have sent me. I made known to them Your name and I will continue to make it known. So important. One of the greatest points, I think, in all the Bible, what he says next. Why would he want to make it known? I made known to them, God, your, your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. Jesus is praying the same love that the Father has from the Son from eternity is that God will want Restoration Church to know that love. That's what I want for them. It's the same thing Paul's praying for the church in Ephesus. That's what your elders pray for you, Restoration Church. We just want you to know the love of Christ. And if we have that, no matter what may come, we'll see this in chapter 4, the wind of the world may toss us to and fro, but we are rooted and grounded in His love. We're going to be alright. We're going to come out on the other side. Beautiful. May we know the love of Christ and be empowered in it. Let's pray on that very thing. In light of these things that we have considered now, God, in these first three chapters of this letter, I pray to You, Father, the One from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of Your glory, Lord God, that You would grant Restoration Church and every other church on planet Earth to be strengthened with power through, Father, Your Spirit in our inner being. So that as You do that, God, Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith so that we as a church might be rooted, grounded in Your love and we then would have strength to comprehend with all the saints all the saints in China, all the saints in Argentina, all the saints in England, all the saints in Congo. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And we pray this, God, that You would do this in our midst that we might then be filled with all the fullness of God. Do this, God, for our good. And as we will consider next week, 
for your forever glory. I ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.